This is not your usual law firm podcast. It's not about analyzing new law, old law, or in the works law. In this podcast, we aim to challenge the status quo, provoke thought, and uncover new ways of thinking. We're about talking to leaders of industry on how they've tackled problems, problems you may have in common, and sharing the solution. We want organizations to think differently, act with agility, and hold back preconceived ideas to entertain a new one. Welcome to Hold That Thought. In this episode, Denton's partner Linda Clark asks the question, is ESG really just a bit of corporate fluff to placate the chorus of climate change advocates? Environmental, social and governance seems to be everywhere, but is it? Or does it have the potential to be an agent for change? Kia ora tatou. I'm Linda Clark. I'm one of the partners at Denton's based in our Wellington office. We're here to talk about ESG. It's a cliche to say that the world faces some wicked problems, but it is true. Climate change, growing distrust in institutions and government, rapidly changing technology, which is uh, having profound implications for the way that we work and interact with each other. And one way businesses are responding to all of this is to invest in ESG, environmental, social and governance standards. Board directors are talking about it. Operational managers are being asked to implement ESG strategies. So is this a good idea? Are these standards real? Are they overhyped? We're going to talk about all of that with two people who know a lot about this and are really involved in developing the ESG concept, if we can call it that way. So my guests are Abby Foote. Abby is a professional director with over 15 years of governance experience, predominantly in listed businesses, currently a director of several NXX listed companies. KMD Brands, Sanford and Freightways, and she chairs Christchurch City Council's infrastructure owning arm CCHL. Kia ora, Abby. And John Berry, who is the co-founder, CEO, and uh, resident wayfinder at Pathfinder Asset Management. I don't think I need to say any more about you, but John, you're free to <laughs> you're free to add something more to that very, very no, brief bio. But we're very excited to have you here. Let's get on and start the conversation. Why does ESG matter? John, you first. ESG matters because, well, if we think about what ESG is, it is a framework for better understanding business. So it's helping us with non-financial metrics around a company or a business. It's not perfect. It's not science. But essentially, it's recognizing that a business is more than just money and dollars and measurement in dollars. It's about people and it's about communities and environment as well. On one level, that shouldn't be controversial, but on the other, you can see why it is, right? Because we know that how directors often see their role is to look after the bottom line, to make sure that the, that the business is a profitable, but also that the shareholders get something back at the end of the day. Abby, what's your observation of that? I think there's a sense that business has been focused too much on the short term, which has led to the costs of some of their behaviour being borne by others. And I think increasingly business is recognising that it needs to have strong relationships with stakeholders such as customers or employees and community for it to be able to succeed and that those stakeholders actually expect more from business than they might have in the past. Um, I think that Edelman Trust Barometer is always a really interesting stat here because this year, I mean, they've been measuring trust in various institutions for 23 years. This year, 
uh, results suggested that business was actually the only institution which was trusted. So NGOs, government, media didn't meet the standard of trust. And if you think about it from that perspective, it's, you know, there's an increasing expectation that that it's business that needs to start doing some of the heavy lifting and some solving some of these problems. So I'd say, you know, that's really why it matters because people expect us to do it. And so it, it's no longer one of those, you know, I think if you go way back, things like triple bottom line and all of those things, you know, they, they kind of came and went and they were seen as fads. But I think it's because they didn't have the same buy-in from a broad group of, st- I mean, I call it broadly stakeholders, but, you know, employees, customers, uh, regulators, you know, increasingly that all of those bodies are, of stakeholders are coming together with similar expectations. And I think that's why it matters for business. The way into this often, John, has been um, climate change, hasn't it? I mean, that's it's the sort of it, it's the it, confronting the realities of of where we are at with the climate that has led a lot of companies to sort of put some of these issues on the radar. Do you agree with that proposition? So absolutely, ESG is much much more than climate change, and then as one aspect of it buried within the E. So some people talk about ESG plus C, and the C can be climate or carbon or culture, but it's more, ESG is much, much more than um, just purely a climate change um, focus. That is one factor within the environmental factors. I guess it is one factor though that has probably had more priority or more, it's kind of been easier to get on people's radar. Yeah, well, environmental factors generally are easier to get on the radar. Like some people refer to the S, social factors as the poor cousin of environmental factors. So it's easier to measure your, your emissions and your, your waste to landfill than often it is your um, social impacts of a, of a business. I think one of the things that's made climate, given climate the profile that it has within that overall ESG, is that we've now got some mandates around it. And I think that's actually driving behaviour in a, in a useful way. So, so you know, there's, some, there's a lot of companies that have been doing ESG in the broader sense for a number of years, and they will have thought about issues which are particularly relevant to their organisation. But I think increasingly we're sitting back, standing back from all of that and saying clients important, climate is important to every organisation. And now that's been recognised by the government's decision to make climate-related disclosures mandatory for a number of, you know, large listed entities. But but that increasingly, that, that list of of companies that need to move to climate-related disclosures includes banks, and everybody has a relationship with a bank, you know. So the reality is all of that is starting to make the focus on climate more relevant for more companies than than ESG might have been in the past. Look, Abby, I'll just say, I think you're absolutely right. The Historically, the thing about climate change is it's a multi-decade challenge, and it's like a slow train wreck. You know, something like COVID was instant and governance and businesses could mobilise in terms of um, allocating resource and changing the way they did things. Whereas climate's been on everyone's radar, but it's it's multi-year. And between now and 2050, you know, which is a lot of people's targets, you might have, I don't know, five changes of CEO within an organisation. But now, like Abby was saying, with the climate standards coming in, and the, the need for scenario planning and tra- transition plans, it suddenly made it really real and really tangible for business. And really I mean, I, I, I've read some commentary actually about, you, you mentioned COVID, and I've read some commentary about COVID where, you know, there are some who will say that what the pandemic did too in the ESG space is that kind of, it was a bit of a wake-up call to a lot of people about the fragility of 
the status quo and this and 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 you hear this in a lot in the conversations about certainty uncertainty people constantly searching you know directors constantly ser searching for certainty what the pandemic showed us i guess is that there might not be so much certainty in the world in which we live and esg kind of falls in that space in a way doesn't it yeah, I think that's right, Linda. What COVID demonstrated is the ability for, for multiple risks to occur at the same time and for that to create something that, that was almost unmanageable for a number of businesses. You know, it really, it's that kind of exponential effect. And that's the framework within which we also need to think about climate. You know, it's not going to be a single risk. It's going to be a whole lot of risks uh, integrating to have quite a significant impact on businesses. And it's really about how, do, how does business try and bring some degree of thinking to all of those risks such that the consequences are not as dramatic as they were, for example, in relation to the COVID-related risks. I think as with anything, you know, two boards will have two different kind of appetites for risk. They'll have two different risk matrices that they can put into play, I, I suppose. And that goes to this issue of, you know, my core question, what is it, why does it matter? Um, because people may well have different ideas about what ESG looks like. So maybe you can give us some ideas in your own and companies that you're involved with as to what does it look like where you can wield some influence. John, you have a go at this first. Thanks. Um, look, I suppose we're an investment manager, right? So we manage KiwiSaver funds. We manage money outside of KiwiSaver. So there's two levels to ESG in our business. The first is at the portfolio level. So we're managing money for people. Um, and ESG is one of the metrics we use to help us choose better companies, what we regard as better companies. So we focus, our focus is investing ethically. So it's one step. You know, a lot of ESG is actually just helping us choose better companies. So it's helping us choose companies that manage risk well, that are well governed. They tend to be more profitable long-term, they also tend to be more resilient to market downturns. So ESG, you can equate with quality and it helps us choose better companies. So in a sense, helps us make more money for investors. But then that's only one piece part of the puzzle. So ESG is just one tool. We also use exclusions, you know, like animal testing, animal exploitation, a whole bunch of things, sustainable themes. We're investing in community housing and renewables, um, engaging with companies, also impact investing. So there's, ESG is, is not in itself the answer to, well, we're going to have the perfect portfolio. It's just one piece of ethical investing then the second step so that's a portfolio set the second step is in our business and we recognize it's actually easy for any business to create a uh, ESG friendly product um, a green product you've got to embed those principles right through your business and that's what um, you know being more authentic around what you're doing is all about it's a whole of business approach so for me it's firstly about philosophy what is your vision as a business what is your mission um, we talk about our mission as duality of we want to generate individual wealth and collective well-being by ethical investing and that the duality of that is we make money for investors. I'm still ultimately a capitalist. I want to make as much money as I can for my investors. I want to do it in a way that not only doesn't harm the planet, but is actually positive for people, planet, and animals. And that duality is everything we do. We try and balance that duality. So philosophy is part of it. People is part of it. One of our board members, Anya Santanyan, you know, she's on a financial services board. She is a um, it's an expert in, in social issues. She comes from an NGO background. She has no financial experience at all. Her voice at the table, to me, is 
so important because it brings that diversity and that's part of um, ESG. And then similarly within the business, we've got an environmental scientist and our investment team can't read a balance sheet but understands everything you need to know about climate change. When I'm hiring people, you know, there's a ton of questions I'll ask people, but one of the questions is our world faces so many problems around environment and social. What keeps you awake at night or what do you think about as key issues for our children and grandchildren? And I struggle hiring people that cannot answer that question. I don't care what their answer is. I just want them to have something they're passionate about. And it can be social, it can be oceans, it can be whatever, something they care about. And the, and the last thing I'll mention just really quickly is, you know, this has got to be embedded in business models. We've got to do better than the Milton Friedman model of business of business is business. Just make money short term for shareholders, pay dividends. Let's start thinking long term. Let's start thinking about how business can be part of the solution long term for, for the really gnarly social and environmental problems. So we've built our KiwiSaver business as a social enterprise. And to me, really quickly, four principles. One, try and find a um, social problem or environmental problem you want to be part of the solution for. For me, for 10 years, I've been on boards of charities, long-term funding, reliable long-term funding streams, such a problem, I want to solve that problem or contribute to solving the problem. So I want to generate long-term passive income streams for charities. Second, your solution has to scale with your business. So we've scaled giving to our revenue, not our profit as a business, but to our revenue. Thirdly, make your solution hurt, so there's some pain. We give 20% of our revenue. It's one of the largest cost lines in our in our PL statement as a business. Giving away 20% of revenue is frightening. But if we're going to have um, an impactful difference, um, that's what we need to do. And finally, just think of it in non-transactional terms of infinite, infinite game terms of we're working with charities. They are not a sales force for us. They don't have to do anything we are giving to them. We've just given for the last year um, close to half a million dollars, which was double what we gave the year before, which is double what we gave the year before. But this is scaling with our business and it's really impactful for business. So I think your question was, what does ESG look like um, within Pathfinder? For me, it's not just product, it's people, it's philosophy, it's business model, it's embedded everywhere. There's a lot to unpack in that, and I will come back to some of that. But Abby, I just wanted to give you, I wanted to get a sense from your business experience. What does ESG look like for you? Yeah, look, I guess I sit across a number of different companies. And, and what I would say is is probably I'd pick up on some of the points that, that John made. In my view, in order for ESG to be something that delivers real results, it needs to be authentic and therefore what you consider to be your ESG kind of strategy or initiatives, if you like, needs to be intricately linked into your, you know, what your business is and what your strategy is. So, you know, if I think about the organisations I'm involved in, KMD is a retailer of consumer goods, so owns Kathmandu and Rip Curl, Oboe's Footwear, which is actually a B Corp. So, you know, we go actually through a process of having our ESG credentials certified, if you like. But we focus particularly on waste, you know, opportunities to, to kind of really build a circular economy and also thinking about the communities that our products are made in. So really kind of ensuring that we understand that the people who are working in the communities that make our products are being looked after. And that's where our focus is for ESG. Whereas if I think about Sanford, for example, as a fishing company, it looks different. There are some aspects that are consistent across ESG in most companies, if you like, which is things like diversity, inclusion and and climate and those sorts of things. But for Sanford, it's much more about using more of the fish that we catch so that we're not uh, wasting that resource. It's investing in the environments that we operate in. It's putting equipment on our boats to help measure increasing temperature of the oceans. You know, it's those sorts of things. So I think in each case, how you make it stick and how you make it meaningful is by linking those, what you are going to do 
into your business and then it you know it becomes much more of an opportunity than a cost and I think that's that's the key to making it impactful and long-lasting. I mean both those examples from both of you I mean the way you've both described it in your different parts of the economy highlight the opportunity as you say but also one of the complications which is that there isn't a cookie cutter here right there's not you can't just pull something out of a file and it looks like this. If a business is embarking on this, it's at the beginning of this, it's ESG journey. It's kind of hard to know, it seems to me, it's potentially quite hard to know how to start. It's hard to know what it is you're meant to be measuring and then how you communicate that, but also then how you ensure that you achieve that. What do you say to that? John. You're absolutely right. There is um, There are no sort of accepted one-off standards um, and it is hard it is hard to get started as an organisation because it does require a change of thinking and a change of measurement. So I would say best place to start is with your why. Like if you suddenly think, I'm going to introduce ESG into my business, you've got to think about identify, articulate, embed. And identify exactly why you're doing this, be able to explain it to people to get them on the journey with you, and then think about how you're going to embed it in the business. You know, it's all about if you're going on a mission, lock in that mission, but you've got to understand, first of all, exactly what it is and why you're doing it. It's got to be more than, I want to build a really strong reputation around being a green company. I think there's a, a market sector here that I can tap into and it's going to be great for profitability. It's got to be way more than that, right? So be really clear on what your why is. Secondly, within the organisation, you need to embed it vertically, so from board level right down and also horizontally. So you'll have pockets within your organisation that know a lot, have really good knowledge about particular parts, the HR department, some technical people on product. You've got to work out how you're going to share that knowledge through the organisation to upskill everyone on it. Thirdly, implementation, you've got to think really carefully about what are the right social factors as the poor cousin of measurement measures. So that's actually meaningful and how you're going to report it um, and then you're setting yourself a benchmark. So every year you just work on getting better, but get those measurements right and also work out where is the low-hanging fruit in my business so I can get some really quick wins on the board to show everyone this is meaningful, both in terms of having positive ESG impact and, and maybe um, impact on bottom line as well. You know, if you, ideally, if you can match both those up is really, really cool. But Let me you know, just push the, you there. Like the, yeah. the reality for New Zealand business, I think, you know, last time I looked at something like 72% of New Zealand businesses employ 15 people or fewer. It's a, you know, it's a, we're an economy that's built on a lot of small and medium enterprises. Do you have to be a big business to do ESG? Abby, what's your thought? Yeah, I don't think you are uh, at all. In fact, I, you know, I'd say I'd, I'd build on the points that John made by saying, you know, one of the first places to start is actually to ask your stakeholders, what would they like to see you doing? And then it's what worries them about your business. So I'd start by asking them and then I'd say, think about what worries them and think about whether there's any of those things that you could make a meaningful impact to. And it might not be a big thing, right? It might just be, you might have staff that are worried that, you know, you're putting out too much rubbish each week or, you know, they want to have somewhere to put their leftover lunch things. Or, you know, I, I just think it's about saying, well, talk to the people that matter most to your business and then ask them what worries them and think about what you could do to make a difference. And I think the, the bigger the organisation, the bigger the expectation should be, right, in terms of the impact being beyond just the business. And I think because it's been something that has probably started in a listed company space, there can be this sense that it's big and, and impossible for small companies to do something about. But if you break it down, it's all about saying, you know, what what's the impact of your business 
on those around you and how could you make it have less of an impact and I think that makes it more manageable. I think you're absolutely right. It's quite telling that you know, you're on the board of Kathmandu, which is a B Corp and a large organisation. You becoming a B Corp would have been way harder than it was for us, a Pathfinder, yeah. as a small fund manager. So it, it's kind of balanced because a large organisation has the resource that can go, let's set up a sustainability team and let's throw some resource at that. And, and a small business can't do that, right? A small business, people have day jobs and they'll try and fit in around that. But a small business also really easy to get your purpose embedded in the business and spread amongst people and the conversations going and work out what those small actions you can take are that Abby was talking about that are really impactful. So I think there's pros and cons of both, but it doesn't matter. Any business can get started on this journey. You've both talked in different ways about stakeholders. And one of the stakeholders, of course, with most businesses are their customers or clients. And we've seen, and you, you referred to this earlier, John, I mean, we see this all the time now, businesses burnishing their ESG credentials and marketing themselves very much as that, particularly in the green space. But how do clients and customers really kind of tell what's real and what's not here? I, I suppose I, I flip it on the head in terms of, everyone talks about greenwashing, you know, now there's some um, green hushing and a whole bunch of other terms, but I flip it on its head and say, don't look at a business and think about whether they're greenwashing. Look at a business and think about whether they're authentic. And it's flipping it on its head and it's trying to understand what is their purpose and are they more than just providing a green product? Have they embedded right through the business? Can they talk in an articulate way about what they're trying to achieve? Does it... Does it feel authentic? Does it feel like it's more than just tapping into a market opportunity? And it's not easy for consumers, right? It takes time and you've got to know the right questions to ask. In the investment space, there are really helpful websites like Mindful Money or like Responsible Investment Association that do those comparisons. So, you know, it makes it easier for consumers to do their research. And sometimes it may cost more. It doesn't, it shouldn't in the investment space, but there are plenty of products that maybe cost a, a small amount more for the sustainable option. And that that's problematic as well for, for a lot of people who want to do the right thing. Um, but yeah, it's, not, it's not easy for consumers. And Abby, you're involved in companies that have a very big retail front, don't they? I mean, there's a lot of interaction with customers who have a lot of choice. Yeah, yeah, they do. And look, it's not easy. I think Kathmandu has been known for some time for its emphasis on, you know, ESG related issues. And I guess that's recognised in the fact that it has been a B Corp for a while. And, and now we've been able to certify uh, Rip Curl and Oboes as well. But where you have that bigger kind of footprint, it is increasingly hard to ensure that people understand. You know, I think back to my days when I was the chair of Z, similar, it's big profile, it can be really hard to get the message across. You know, Zed was really committed to solving the fossil fuel challenge, but that's not an easy fix either. And it's easy to get sort of tarred with the brush of what you sell. It can take a long time to move away from that. I think it probably picks up on a point that John was making earlier. It needs to be authentic and therefore, you know, and if it's authentic, it will show up in everything that you do and therefore customers will start to believe it. If it looks like it's an advertising campaign and and it's not the same as the advertising campaign that you were in last month. Or, you know, you might run an advertising campaign about one product, but the next product doesn't go anywhere close to satisfying that. It doesn't look authentic. And I think increasingly customers are becoming pretty good at working out what are authentic brands. And it can take time to build up that message, as I think John was saying. But, but that's where the value comes is when customers recognize that when you say something, you mean it and you have embedded it in what you do. And I, I guess I would just, sorry, just the authentic. Authenticity is also that you are saying the same thing 
to every group that you speak to. So it's not just that you're telling a story about green credentials to your customers, but you're telling your shareholders something different. You know, you need to be delivering the very same message to all of the groups that you interact with, and then people will see that it is part of the brand. So on that question about, so sort of, you know, kind of brand association, it brings me to another point, which is potential for backlash, right? Like, so we live in divided times. I referred to that right at the very outset of our conversation. And in the States in particular, there's been quite a vicious backlash to the concept of ESG. It's associated with woke, which is, you know, used in a pejorative sense. We're not seeing that debate here in New Zealand yet, but do you think it will happen, John? I'd like to think and I hope that um, we don't get the polarisation in the US. You know, Elon Musk tweeted that um, ESG has been weaponised by social justice warriors, and, and it is along political lines. It is politicised, it's very polarised. In New Zealand, I think we've got a really sensible and constructive and pragmatic and forward-looking approach to ESG. We're trying to use it just to create better companies. As investment managers, we're trying to use it to choose, you know, to, to work with companies to make them high quality, to make them more profitable, to make them more resilient, to make them more sustainable. It's not just about wokeness, it's about being pragmatic about what ESG can offer both investors, staff within businesses as well. It creates better workplaces. So I would do, like Do either of you ever hear any resistance to that proposition that it makes better workplaces and it, it makes it makes better companies? Do you ever hear that now around the table or uh, you know, in business circles? Well, no, I don't. But what I do hear is a percent, and I see it in surveys of people who will not put their money in a fund that uses ESG metrics or ethical investment approach because some people actively want tobacco companies and gambling and weapons, and, and that's their choice. It's entirely legal, and it's their choice to invest in those things. I don't hear people saying that there is no place for ESG in the workplace. We should just focus on short-term profit and even put their heads down and, and who cares if people are being bullied. Because the, the research shows that people are happy in a workplace if you have a high S factor, looking after staff, training staff, you'll have lower staff turnover, you'll have more engaged staff, you'll have more creativity and innovation, you'll have more collaboration. People want to come and work in your business. Like there's measurable reasons why a business will do better if it cares about social, environmental and governance metrics. I'd like to think that we're a bit more pragmatic in New Zealand and, and maybe I'm kind of overly optimistic, but I think, you know, where some of the challenges have come in the US has been where, you know, ESG has been broadened to the point it's become quite political. Companies have either been forced or have chosen to take stances on issues where, you know, it probably goes beyond what they need to actually take a stance on in, a, in an ESG sense. And then that exposes them to an expectation that is increasingly high around, you know, if you've engaged on one issue, I'm now expecting you to engage on all these other 10 issues. And suddenly the company's forced into taking a position on issues that are not necessarily fundamental to its business. I think in New Zealand, we've been more, maybe less political, more pragmatic, more focused on, you know, I would like to thank the issues that actually matter to your business and not getting drawn into something that becomes bigger and more unwieldy. And so I'd like to think we won't have that backlash because the reality is that if ESG is being done in a meaningful way, it's being done to solve the longer term issues that are facing all of us. And so actually allowing it to become politicised and allowing companies to 
to dip in and out of of what they are doing around ESG as a strategy is not helpful for anyone because the more that you're dipping in and out, the more you're actually wasting time and money and effort and, and, and not actually delivering on anything. You know, And also we're not making an impact on the issues that are fundamentally underlying the reason for ESG being there in the first place. So if, as you say, that the ESG timeline is much longer, I mean, that's different to politics anyway, isn't it? It's different to the short political cycle. I mean, the way you've both described it. But how does something like a recession impact this? Because in one sense, you kind of would think that, but also one of the complications, which is that we're living particularly at the moment in times where the whole narrative is really, you know, bread and butter issues, keeping it simple and keeping the target as small as possible. Does that get in the way then? I think you can't deny that, you know, economic pressures do start to have an impact. I think customers have to make a choice that is different from the choice that they might choose to make were they not to have the same uh, economic pressures. I think companies end up in a similar position, particularly in the listed company space, there's a risk that investors who perhaps don't have as strong a lens as John um, end up in a focus on dividends and yield because that's what their customer base needs out of their investment portfolio rather than long-term returns. And so all of those things can create pressure on organisations to deliver to those expectations in a short-term way, which can undermine the long-term. I think it goes back to avoiding falling victim to those pressures, if you like, goes back to the way in which you think about ESG in the first place. So if what you have done is you've identified the areas that you are going to focus on, you're really clear about what the long-term impact is that you want to make, you're embedding that within your strategy. So it's not it's not an ESG strategy, it's actually part of your total business strategy and you are working towards those things. You should be able to keep doing that regardless of the recession, right? So you may end up with the need to kind of reduce costs around the edges, but in the same way that you inevitably have to for any aspect of your strategy. But the reality is the core of it should be able to carry through and you should remain committed to the impact and results of that over a longer term. So I, th- I think that's how businesses need to think about constructing their ESG strategy in a way that makes it resilient to some of those shorter-term economic pressures that will come and go. What's your reaction to that, John? I saw you nodding Mm -hmm. your head. If we take it through two lenses, firstly, the business, you know, why is the business doing it? If it's um, they're just trying it as a bit of a marketing thing and they're quite fickle, well, yes, in recession, they may well drop it. If they're genuine about it and they think this is really going to make a difference, they will find a way to make it work. Even if it means cutting it back, they will find a way to make it work. Ultimately, a business needs long-term sustainability, right? Like talking to one business who was giving 5% of their sales to a charity had to cut it to 1% because of business costs and pressures. And they were still being authentic, but they cut it to 1% because business has to be sustainable long-term. It's not going to help the stakeholders that are trying to improve, you know, the staff in in the NGO sector. So that's a think about the thought it's about business. On the consumer side, if I think about the move to ethical investing, the move to conscious consumerism, that is an unstoppable long-term trend. That's not going away. There might be short-term blips, like at the moment we have a cost of living crisis. It is really, really hard for a lot of people to pay their mortgage. Affordability and a whole bunch of things becomes problematic. Yes, that may change your thinking, but I would say a lot of people will be looking to do the things that don't necessarily cost money. They may cost time. 
So give it volunteering time, switching your KiwiSaver to an ethical provider, catching the bus. There's a whole bunch of things, you know, and I catch a bus to work every day. There's a whole bunch of things you can do that are easy that may cost you time, but not cost you money. But I think long-term from a consumer lens, it may be volatile, where, but the general direction is unstoppable in terms of this is a real thing, this is not a fad. And we need to get on top of it because it's important for the planet. Are we not past the point where the sort of shtick that it might be a fad? We're kind of beyond that, aren't we? I mean, it is actually, you guys have both used the word embedded in a different context. But I mean, there's a lot of companies now where this is quite embedded. And as you say, John, conscious consumerism is something you can't turn it off once people have become conscious of certain things about certain businesses. You can't unknow what you know, right? It's, it's done. I'd completely agree with you, Linda, and that's certainly the way I think about it. But I do have to admit that I, I um, not long ago, sort of maybe um, four or five months ago, I had an investment banker in New Zealand try and tell me that, you know, it was all a fad and now, now we were all going to kind of not have to focus so much on ESG. And I just thought that there are still those who either believe that or would like that to be true. I don't think any organisation that has actually thought long and hard about ESG and made a a real commitment to it. I don't think they think of it like that. The New Zealand investment environment, if you like, does have a a range of different perceptions or expectations around ESG, and I guess that still plays out. Does New Zealand need national standards or some, (laughs) that sounds like an education question, God forbid, but um, would that help or hinder? Well, I I guess for me and why I'm kind of really supportive of the stance that KMD's taken is that that's what B Corp provides, right? I think it provides a way of verifying and independently auditing what the organisation has done to actually be able to claim it as a B Corp, but also across all of those elements of ES and G. I think, you know, for me, it's a little bit of a frustration that probably the the broader community doesn't recognise B Corp quite in that fashion yet. So it is a real credentialing of the work that's being done. But in the listed company space, there's probably not enough recognition of that, probably because there aren't enough listed B Corps, right? I think KMD's one of only 45 globally. But it is that sense that everyone keeps trying to create their own standard for, for verifying these things. And while that keeps happening, it means that it's possible for all these different kind of measures to exist and people to be judged against um, measures other than, you know, which might seem like a good idea to one provider and not to another. And it just creates noise and challenge for organisations to respond to because increasingly, you know, we used to find this at a number of my other organisations, you would get approached constantly by all sorts of different ESG credentialers asking you to just produce more and more data for them so that they could put it in their thing and give you a sort of an assessment. And you get to the point where you just can't keep up with all of the information requests that people have and everyone's judging you by different standards so I do think that's one of the challenges that we have is that there isn't an internationally or nationally recognized standard of what does it look like equally I'm not sure that there is a one-size-fits-all because the reality is as we've talked about already all of these things are ultimately developed to reflect their particular organizational challenges so there are some that you know of course we can have general measures on and we do through things like GRI and that sort of thing but others are not quite so easily pigeonholed 
by a national standard. Yeah, just to add to that, I don't have much to add. You know, it's amazing. In, in investment, we have three letters ESG. We can't really agree what they mean, let alone words like impact and sustainability. In investing, there's not standard definitions of those. They mean different things to different people. You know, there are two approaches you can take. You can either go the European approach of let's create some standards. Let's make some rules. Okay, they run for 500 pages. You know, set up a whole new department in the business dealing with this, and that creates a whole new set of problems. And it also puts up barriers to entry, to innovation, to new smaller businesses, right? Without actually achieving much. So that, that's one approach, a prescriptive approach. In New Zealand, we're very good at a principles based approach. That's the FMA, the financial markets regulator, our new climate standards, pretty principles based. And that's good because New Zealanders do want to do well and want to do things properly generally principles-based works well in New Zealand and people may interpret them differently, put their own spin on it, but ultimately if the intent is there and in the ESG space you're measuring and you're improving every year, I think that's more important than just having one single 1,000-page set of rules for everyone to follow, which would cut out innovation, which would cut out a whole bunch of things. And every time you create a rule, you, you create the opportunity for arbitraging the rule. You create the opportunity for people to score well. Tobacco companies, great example. There are tobacco companies in the top 10 of the most sustainable companies in the world in some ESG indexes. It's like, how do they do it? Well, they know what the rules of the index are so they can game it in terms of what they offer staff, how they work with communities, make sure there's no child labour. They look wonderful. What do you know? Their product kills people. They shouldn't be in a sustainability index, but that that's the reality of creating rules. People can can ultimately game them. What we're looking for here is principles based and the right of intent from business leaders. And obviously from what both of you have said in the course of this conversation, that flexibility to allow different companies to come up with different definitions or solutions for the problems that fit their purpose. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's important because if you're trying to dictate what the solution is, it can be a barrier as I think John's covered. Yeah. Yeah. Last question for both of you, and it comes off something you said, John, a little earlier, but it seemed to me like a good way to end this conversation, which is what keeps you both awake at night? Bearing in mind, John, I think you need to go first, since you'd already said you wouldn't employ <laughs> anyone who didn't have an answer to this, so you're on the spot, mate. Okay. I'll tell you, when people think about their purpose and how they arrive at why they're driven by a mission, you know, there's a number of things that have been really impactful for me. One of them was I understood climate change and how the peaks of the earth were being impacted. I read a study on exploration of the Mariana Trench and the Kermitic Trench, 10 kilometres underwater. Nothing grows below five kilometres underwater. So this is like Mount Everest plus another two or three kilometres. Everything down there has come from the outside world. When they went to about 20 spots and measured the toxins there, the man-made toxins were off the scale compared to industrial polluted rivers. And I think that's what blew my mind was, oh my God, nowhere on earth is safe. The peaks are not safe. The troughs of the ocean are not safe. We are really messing this up. We need to do something about it. And it's, first of all, understanding where we're at. Then secondly, ESG makes you think longer term. ESG makes you think with a, a long-term intergenerational lens. We got approached by Naitahu in 2017 to manage their international equities for them because we were kind of the only manager that had this long-term intergenerational lens. It starts making you think about risk and your children's future in a completely different way. So what keeps me awake is I'm an eternal optimist in the sense that I think there are solutions and I think business is going to be a really important part of the solution. But what keeps me awake is inaction and not doing enough. Yeah, I, I, I'm probably going to come to the same conclusion, but it's like, through a slightly different route. You know, the thing that got me probably more 
exercised about climate change is that I've come at it from a risk lens. And, you know, I, I've always kind of been passionate about getting value from risk and organisations that I'm involved with. And I think increasingly it's become clear to me that, that the risks that are associated with climate change are risks that we cannot mitigate. You know, they are going to be massive on our businesses. They are going to have significant impacts. And we're not even kind of really thinking about them. And, you know, all we need to do is look at the impact of recent events in, in Auckland and um, Napier to see how ill-prepared we are. And then if I think about climate change within that risk context, it's, you know, instead of it being the black swan, it's the grey rhino. You know, you can see it coming and you know it's there, but no one's doing anything about it. So that worries me because I, I, I'm still surprised at the number of organisations or people that I talk to in organisations who are not sufficiently prepared for climate-related disclosures. And, you know, that's just the beginning of it because the reality is that all climate-related disclosures is asking you to do is to disclose how you're thinking about things. And I, th and I think the reality is there's a lot of organisations that have got a lot of work to do in order to be thinking about how they will manage those transition risks. And that makes me really worried about our ability to actually make a meaningful impact on the emissions reduction because if they can't even start thinking about you know, how their own business will be impacted by the changing climate, it's unlikely that they're being prepared to do anything about it because they haven't even got as far as recognising how big that impact will be. So if we don't start making a meaningful impact in terms of emissions reduction, it's going to be worse. That's what worries me about this. No, they are big <laughs> problems. But I guess the, the, the optimistic outtake is that the sort of things we've been talking about today do provide a bit of a roadmap, right? They might just be kind of steps across the pond, but they are those sort of lily pads that'll get us there. It's been fantastic talking to you, John Berry and Abby Foote. Thanks very much. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks a lot.